How did the reading start there, Chris? And that's about it. That wraps it up, which is, today is our last sermon in the book of Ephesians, so fitting words for, and that wraps it up. <clears throat> but it's also kind of the pinnacle of Ephesians. It's something that the letter's been building to throughout, sort of this idea of this tension that exists in the world, this this sort of uh, conflict that's been boiling up, this sort of a way of living at odds. And so this is the last time you'll have to see this with my bad handwriting, although I did add some stuff, is that is that we've talked about how we, we live in normal life or in true Christian life on this bottom timeline. And I added some words, this bottom timeline in Ephesians is governed first by death, first by what is old, and last by, by darkness. That these are sort of the things that sort of exist in this old timeline. But what happens in the cross, what happens in our baptisms, what happens when we follow Jesus is we're invited into sort of a different set of time. <clears throat> and that, that, that timeline is governed by contrasts, or is, is, is moving by contrasts away from what was old and death and darkness towards what is light and new and life. These are all words that we've heard from the book of Ephesians contrasted with one another. And so what happens in, in sort of what Jesus does on the cross is it breaks open a new sphere and a new space for us to be. But what you'll notice is this bottom timeline ends, that Christ will extinguish death someday, that, that the sin and darkness and the old and these other things will someday no longer be. And on this new timeline, light and life and new will sort of go on. They'll exist out into the future, right? And so what happens is that we exist in the box at the moment. We exist, in some sense, governed in, in our bodies, brought to this new timeline, this, this new space with God. And yet we exist in a world that still has this conflict, still has these principalities and powers in Paul's language, still has this, um, in Paul's language, this devil that sort of hinges out there. And that these are sort of the ways. And so what happened in, in <coughs> leaves the cross is shorthand. But what happened in the resurrection, which follows the cross, is that God has birthed a new world and sort of a new creation, a beachhead in the world that still exists in sin is dysfunction. But what Paul is telling us at the end of Ephesians here, and, and other places too, is that the world that exists that way, principalities and powers, Satan and darkness, are not happy about that. And so we have to put ourselves on this armor, put ourselves on this plane, because that's what we need to get through today. Now, the one thing you'll notice up there is this dotted line for the, for the new line, is what Paul says, and this is new to me, so this is why I always want to hit on it, because I didn't have that line at first, is that Paul says this is the wisdom known before being revealed. See, so often in the Christian life, I thought, okay, well, God, God tried rescue on this timeline, and that didn't work, so he sent his son and started a whole new timeline. But what the book of Ephesians actually says is that God's plan was to start a whole new thing all along. It wasn't like, well, everything I tried failed, so now I'm finally elevating it up to this plan. What actually happened is, is, that, is that this sort of plan has existed for, for the ages, that this plan to renew things this way has been the plan all along. And so this is the way that it's sort of governed. Now, one of the things <clears throat> that I think is a shocker for us is that we exist in a universe and conflict. So imagine waking up on June 6th in Normandy and uh, 
this is all history nerd stuff. I'm assuming you all know that what I'm talking about. Um, uh, on D-Day, that's Normandy, June 6th, um, with this battle that rages on and sort of being the type of person who's like, everything is fine. Let's just live and go through the world as if, if this isn't happening. Now, if you know anything about the battle at Normandy or the battle at D-Day or any battle, is that that's not really a possibility, right? That conflict is so heightened that you can't just go to the store. You can't just run out and get some groceries and say, well, that's not really happening right now. You can't go for a swim that day. If you've seen, a, if you're not familiar with the language, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, this is what that day is like. And what I think Paul and the New Testament writers, the pressure which burrs the New Testament is that type of, of sort of conflict is going on. And yet what's happened in the modern world is we've been able to live without it at the forefront of our minds for sure, and not on our minds at all, which is, the, which is the greater problem, is that we don't exist with this notion of that this pressure really thing is going to happen. And so I pulled together some verses um, from other places that give light to this, and it's all over the New Testament. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violence people have been raiding it. Violent people have been raiding it. This is Jesus talking to the disciples that, that, that this moment up until now, that the kingdom of heaven has been subject to this violent and the violence and the violent people are taking it and raiding it. This is the kingdom of heaven. The second one is, this is one of my favorite ones for this week from 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We don't often think of our Christian lives that way. That the reason that the Son of God has appeared is to sort of destroy the devil's work. And people are like, oh, the devil's work like the exorcist. And it's like, well, if you really want to live that way, I guess fine. But actually, it's much greater than that. Not greater in like, oh, it's more darker or something like that. Greater in the sense of all the ways in which we distort God's creation. So one of the things that's true about this battle is it goes back to Genesis. A serpent appears in the garden. And the challenge is, is that this challenge to redefine good as we see fit. And so the way that this works is we continue to redefine good. Well, you know what? You know, this thing that, that is bad is actually good. It's sort of the ways in which we sort of move through that. What's the devil's work is the way we make peace more and more with the destruction that dehumanizes hey, look, if you want to live your life that way, go ahead, it's your right. It's not a mindset that you have when you say that this is the devil's work that's supposed to be undone by the Son of God. And you could see why this conflict is boiling up because who would be happy about that? Romans 8, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What happens when we join this thing, and I don't think Paul brings this up for in Romans for no reason, is because we should feel that tension. Paul is not offering this reassuring word because they have no fear that these things might happen. He's offering this reassuring word to say that your victory is secure in who God is. Despite all appearances in the present, despite all ways in which it seems like death and Satan and the world might have the final say, 
Nothing has the final say except for the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is where, where those principalities and powers show up again. In older language, it would say, neither principalities or powers, um, neither height nor depth nor anything, would separate us from the love of God. And this is Colossians 2. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. <clears throat> having disarmed these things, he makes a public spectacle of them. Everything's fine, though. Don't worry about it. That, that this is what Christ has done in the cross and his resurrection, is he's turned these things over. And what we've said is that those two timelines still currently exist in the New Testament. But you can bet that the second timeline is not happy about this. Now, one of the things that we can say, well, the last one, which is the Lord's Prayer, which we pray every Sunday here, um, is deliver us from the evil one, which we say deliver us from evil. In both Greek instances of the Lord's Prayer, both the Matthew and Luke version, the evil one is actually present there. We pray it this way, I think because of the Book of Common Prayer and something to do with King James English. But the reality is, is that in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we pray to be rescued, to be delivered from the evil one. That would be odd if there is no evil one. Now, C.S. Lewis is somebody who spent lots of ink, and he's not like your, um, when you think of, of people who are obsessed with this stuff, C.S. Lewis is not one of them. He's not somebody who sees demons behind everything, is trying to cast out demons from all his friends, is worried about these things. But he says that these are very serious realities, so much so that we should be more and more aware of them. And one of the things, and this he wasn't the first person to say this, but the, the greatest trick the devil ever played on us in this context is us forgetting that the devil exists is pretending like the devil exists because then what would you do to combat right what would you do if there is no evil one you would just sort of live as if those traps and pitfalls and temptations and distortions are not present in the world i don't know a lot about war but i would imagine that's a great thing if people are like hey i know that you're here in conflict but i don't even think you exist so let me go on with my day. That our, our, our ability to sort of not care or bring anything about this is, I think, a distortion that happens for us. And so Lewis says this at one point, that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And so he goes on to say, what we have in the New Testament is the radio broadcast of alternative transmission. It's the news from the other timeline. It's the news from the other place is what we have going on in the New Testament. And so this is sort of part of the Christian life is our inability to deal with this. Our inability to think through these realities. Now, the, the second thing I want to say is that Paul uses this phrase principalities and powers, which to us sounds foreign but to them would have been very near. Now, I want to say that if you imagine two overlapping circles, I should have made this slide, two overlapping circles uh, is a Venn diagram, right? It's been a while since I've been in school. Um, two overlapping circles, a Venn diagram, if you will, um, and you have one that's spiritual, and you have one that's physical, and the overlap is there. 
In the New Testament, spiritual is not code for not physical. They're realities that are harder for us to see. They're realities as humans that are harder for us to perceive. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. And so much so that the Christian life is lived in the Venn diagram, the overlap of these two things, is that we're aware of these things that we don't see. And the struggle in our life is to see them. Or to at least live as if they're there. And so principalities and powers are these things. And we talked about this when we talked about um, the ancient idea that rulers of the world and countries were governed by sort of like gods or demons, I guess you could say, depending on your perspective. And that when they were heightened, when they were frustrated, when they were, you would see that in their god. It would be their god resembling that. Now, we all think we're too smart for that. But it's actually a coherent way to sort of see the world, is that these things are governed by other things, these principalities and powers. And Paul says that the church's job is to make known the victory of God to these things. That's what he says earlier in Ephesians. Again, a great place to be because we know how this turns out, but a challenge because you're making known to these things that are frustrated at the moment by the beachhead that God's established in Jesus Christ. This is a hard truth. Now, the thing I wanted to say is that there's been great, great theological work this century that's expanded the principalities and powers for us in great ways or drawn them out so that we can see them. So we talked about in Ephesus, there's this god, goddess. Um, she is the center of Ephesus, all of Ephesus around her. She's their sports team. She's their fertility god or sex god and their, their goal of commerce all at the same time. I don't quite have that in America. But she's all these things, and, and what happens for the early Christians is they stop participating in this realm of life. Which sounds like, great, you do what you, you do, you be you? Is that what I'm saying on this? You be you. Um, but what actually happens is the Christian community as it builds begins to pose a threat to the world as it is because they're not participating in this thing that is sort of the life of the city, the life of who they are. And when there's this big riot that because the Christians have caused something, one of the guys stands up and says that they're bringing shame on, on our God. They're bringing shame on the goddess that resides here. Principalities and powers, a little bit easier to see there, right? But what's been happening is, is, is brighter theologians, Jaco Lule is one of them, a Frenchman, the other is William Stringfellow. They both wrote in the 1950s, said that these sort of things are still just as present in the world. They don't call them goddesses. But one of them, Elul, was obsessed with technology. He said, we don't need gods to save us because technology will save us. And not only that, technology will just continually entertain us and bring us things for almost no reason at all. Now, a novelist I really like who hates technology, he's a curmudgeon. This week I was reading an article by him, and he pointed out that, the, that because of our phones, we'll actually read stuff we wouldn't read in a book because of the internet. We'll just read it because it pops into our timeline and our feed and click on it. And that's been like a check for me all week. Hopefully it can stay longer than that is if I click on this article, am I reading it because this is something I actually want to read? Or am I reading this because it's the ways in which I can cope with the moment of the present rather than be confronted with some other news or some other point of life or simply just sit in silence for five minutes and pray if you want, but simply just stand in the silence rather than have to entertain myself all the time. See, principalities and powers, he says, go in technology. He says they go into government. Our governments still exist as principalities and powers. Um, Stringfellow 
applies it out to celebrities. And what he says is celebrity. Um, was that it? Uh, we'll just pick Donald Trump as an example, as the president. That these people, he exists as a person, right? He's just a, a normal guy. But what he exists as, as a principality and power is something else and something more powerful. And if you don't believe me, walk around a certain area of the country without, with a, uh, what's his hat? With his red hat on, or walk around a different area of the country with something that denigrates him and see how that works out for you. It's not him. It's this thing that he represents that's much greater than that. That's multiplied up. We have these principalities of power in our ideologies. We have these principalities of power in the modern notion of sex, unlimited sex for what you want all the time, that plays out in pornography and the distortions that happen in our world. One of my favorite ones to think about is the way it plays out in healthcare. So we have, in this country, we talk about the military-industrial complex. We could also talk about the healthcare-industrial complex that we spend more and more money into this thing over and over again. And yet the fact and the reality that you're going to die seems getting punted off the scene. But not only that, and I, I've said this as I've, I've struggled with my own diagnosis, is the idea that I think most of us live with is I'm sick, I will go to the doctor, I will get healthy, and that cycle will continue until suddenly I get unplugged. Like, I never really do the math on where the end of that cycle is. It's just sort of like, well, it's a, someday I'll go and he'll be like, you're done. Um, and that's a, and, and so we live in this world in which we no longer fear God, but what we fear is death. We live in this world where we, where we no longer have sort of present powers so I can go and do commerce with this goddess, is I can just download something on my phone. I can just buy something else to fill the little bit of emptiness that exists inside of me today and tomorrow and the next day until it's Black Friday again. Cyber Monday. What is it? Giving Tuesday. Yeah, it's, we have holidays for this thing now. There are no principality powers nowadays. There's just a day where we all go to Walmart and buy stuff. And that's nothing. It doesn't represent anything deeper other than, I mean, that's a messed up. We've got our own gods and goddesses quite active in the world. This was a, I know I've been kicking this one. The one that fascinated me, I didn't think about this until uh, some video game came out and all the porn websites said their traffic went down like tenfold, which says a lot about the desperation of young men in society that it's like, okay, I will this is how I consume and entertain myself. And the other option that drags it down is a video game. Now, that may not be your thing, but we could pick one. It is your thing. Sports, healthcare, all the other things that we just sort of jump from one drug to the next. And so this is the world that we are sort of caught up in. So our, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is one of my favorite parts about this, as a Christian who believes that we're called to live nonviolently in the world, is peaceably in the world, is what do we do with all that? Well, first off, it's not exactly that way, because we are in a struggle. The struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these other things. What that tells us about other humans is two things, is that they're captive to these things. Captive in the same way that you were before Christ intervened in your life. 
And as they're captive to these things in various levels of distortion, they're not actually what you battle against. But what you battle against is the, uh, is the people, the flesh and the blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, the powers. This is not to say that we just sit on our hands, but that we know who the real enemy is. <clears throat> and you think about that, that we know who the real enemy is. It's not John across the street. It's not um, Joan down the corner. It's the, the, the powers that are behind those that are holding them captive. What good would it do to distinguish John or Joan or any of those people? Not much, because what the real problem is is so much deeper, so much darker, and so much beyond that. And so what do we do as we exist in that? What do we, what do, we do as we exist as this beachhead of God's invasion into the world? We put on the armor of God. Now, this is a small side note, but I loved it, is that I was Googling images for this, and WikiHow came up. Do you guys know WikiHow? This is what WikiHow normally has on its headlines. That is so small. Sorry. How to avoid being bored when you have dot, dot, dot. How to make mashed potatoes. How to check your car before a road trip. How to retire at 50. Should have clicked on that one. How to grow garlic in water. How to make buttermilk fried chicken. Potluck today. Um, I don't think anybody brought that. But as I was Googling stuff about the armor of God, the stuff that we're called to put on, WikiHow actually had this. How to put on the armor of God, followed by how to make mashed potatoes. Um, it was clever. Um, and the interesting thing about it is it wasn't that bad, which is like the type of people who submit this to WikiHow, I just am. I question their sanity. Um, but this was on WikiHow. But the one mistake that it makes continually is you put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God. Now, the army used to have a slogan that they used when I was growing up that was, uh, be all that you can be. Does anybody else remember that? Be all that you can be. And what they found out is that that didn't actually work that well. There was a lot of people, particularly the people, this is not that... Particularly the people that the army is trying to reach by television ads don't believe that there's much that they can be. So be all that they can be is not really a message that empowers them. So what did the army's new slogan become after that? Does anybody remember? An army of one. An army of one, which, which was meant to give them a place as they exist in um, uh, broken families, broken homes, as the army knows, uh, maybe a GED, not a high school diploma, all these things. Uh, it's meant to give them a place to go and to be in the world. Now, I don't like, as you guys know, I never really use military metaphors. Paul started it, I will say, so I'm just following his dream. But um, to move from the, the, this, put on the armor of God, was very much be all that you can be. It was a call for you to put on the armor of God. But the thing we know about the letter to the Ephesians and the thing we know about God's call for us is it's a call for us to put on the army of God. Because the one thing you'll learn about ancient warfare is one person with armor on is not that effective in a battle. If you've seen Gladiator or any other movie, imagine just one guy out there with his armor. He would look like a fool if it was an actual battle. But what the call of the New Testament is, is for each one of us to put this armor on, to clothe ourselves with the gifts that God has given us. These are, these are graces that God has given us, this armor. 
And so we have, um, this is an ancient soldier. We have the belt of truth, and this belt sort of holds it all together. In ancient warfare, the belt would be the thing that made sure it didn't all fall apart. And this for us is, is called truth, the belt of truth. And it's not hard to see if there's no truth to it, the whole thing does fall apart. So the first thing you're called to arm yourself with, to put on, is this, is this belt of truth. The second place thing is this breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness is a phrase we don't use that often, but it actually connotates this notion of being set right. It's this breastplate that gives you your identity in God. I am one who is set right. It's also one that, that, that the, the Greek word diasukene, it can also be translated justice. Clothe yourself with the justice. One who has been brought into justice, going out to enact justness. The feet, and this is where even he's, Paul's as bad as I am at military metaphors. Your feet will be with the gospel of peace. Um, doesn't scream threat to the enemy, does it? But what it does is, is what Paul says is the reality that you've been brought into, you go out and proclaim peace. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians, that the dividing wall of hostility that runs down the center of humanity has been destroyed in Christ, and peace is now there, and he is our peace. Now, Isaiah should be popping up for you if you really know Isaiah, because in the Gospels, too, it says, you know, blessed are the feet, the good news of those, the feet of those who bring good news. It's that these things are proclaimed out there. Then you have the shield of faith, which is this, this trustworthy loyalty of God. And it says to put out the flaming arrows of the enemy, which is actually a real thing. You would soak your shield in water, so that when the enemy fired flaming shields over into you, you would use it to defend that away. This goes back to that, we don't live in that reality, and that's a hard part about the modern world. But to say that there's no threat when flaming arrows is coming at you is one, not very effective, and two, um, is not, is not a, a wise way to approach the situation. And all these are defensive. Almost everything that Paul lists here is defensive. You're to put on the helmet of salvation. We talk about salvation sometimes in the modern world, but it's this assurance of the final victory of God. You wear the helmet of the victory of God. Not only that, the helmet helps identify you with other people who are in this. It's like a baseball cap. Uh, it helps identify you with the other people who are in this. The, sport, the sword, which is the sport, sword of the spirit, which is the weird word of God. Did anybody grow up with sword drills? I grew up Presbyterian, so no. Um, where you would, we, uh, Kim, can you explain what a sword drill is? Yes, yeah. So the sword was your Bible. Right. And you would try to get to the certain scriptures as fast as you can. Uh, that seems like cheating. It would seem like memorization is a true sword drill, yeah. Um, uh, but this is the word of God. Now, when Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, there is no Bible yet. Half of these things haven't been written. They certainly have been gathered into one book that you could flip through really fast. You'd be like, I need to get another scroll. You said Isaiah and I have the scroll for Exodus. This isn't fair. 
And God forbid you would actually have had two because you'd never be able to do it. Most likely your community would only have one scroll of each book, not multiple scrolls of all the books. Well, the word of God is for Paul is this thing that is alive and active. That is the gospel that saves you. This is enabled by the spirit. It is the active word of God that's claimed over you and named over you. And the sword, the Greek word for the sword is like, it's not a big sword. It's like a dagger more than anything, which brings us back to that most of these are defensive in posture. They're meant to survive the day. And they're all countercultural too, is that you'll notice because Isaiah, I mentioned Isaiah has almost hinted at all these, that the Messiah will carry these things. There's two points about that. The first is, is that vengeance is also named in Isaiah, but not in Ephesians. The reason why we know that is because Romans, or the reason why that's important is because Romans 13 or 12 says that vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance may still have a role to play, but it's not ours to take. It's not ours in the moment. That's why it's left off this list of things from Isaiah that the Messiah will wear. But the second more important thing is that we who are in him go the same way. So he goes to death on a cross, dressed in this armor as Jesus the Messiah. So too we are armed with this. And we too might go to our own deaths. So that's the hard part about this armor, is that it's against things that are deeper and darker than we can see, and that are overcome by God's work of resurrection. This mystery, as Ephesians calls it, that makes known his ways to the world. And this, I think, is a coherent, good way for us to envision the world. The last thing for today is, is to sort of wrap up Ephesians. Is this quote from a book I've been using throughout the sermon series. It's not um, a commentary on Ephesians. And you'll see a section of the quote on the back of your bulletins. But he's talking about the ways in which we will reclaim the common life of the church. And he talks about that through reading the book of Ephesians. Is what the book of Ephesians is about is this common life of the church together that's the beachhead of God's activity in the world that is meant to be a sign and a, a call to what God is doing to set things back, to gather up all things. And that exists in frustration at the moment. The problem, he says, is the church today really has no sense of that. The church today exists in so many disparate ways and so many divided ways that we don't have any sort of common life. And he says, so what we've done is we've reduced it to either societal reform, which you could say there's both a religious left and a religious right version of that, and you could also reduce it to holy living, your own piety. Put on the armor of God yourself. Be all that you can be. We reduce it to an individualistic level. There's both, I think, a left and a right version of that, so this isn't to attack one of them. But what he says is, is that the core, here in core of this, is a common core. And he says what well, is a common life, and what he says is, is that we'll probably develop programs. This is what the modern church does to confront any problem that it has. And this is part of what my journey has been as your pastor, is like, what program would fix this? Isn't there one I can download or buy? It'd be worth quite a bit to me. But he says, no matter what degree of support these programs receive financially or otherwise, they will certainly fail to bring about the degree of change required. Change of the th sort that the church now requires 
requires something more profound than effective programs. It requires a change of heart. As I pointed out in my reading of Ephesians, the change which God people are called to is best described as a new birth, as a dying or rising, as a taking off a suit of clothes or putting on another. The metaphors all point to provision of a new foundation for life, one rooted in love of God. Some years ago, I preached a sermon in the chapel of Yale. In it, I said the problem faced by the church in North America is that many of their leaders and membership have substituted the second commandment for the first. It's the love of neighbor for the first, the love of God. By that claim, I meant Leif had been turned into an ethical man, man to love one neighbor. The second commandment had in fact become the preserved first, with the result that the love for God had been collapsed into a moral duty owed to one's neighbor. I would now add that for others, the second commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself has become not an analogy, but a positive command to make the love of self, along with the love of neighbor, a positive duty. In either case, love of God has become a secondary matter, dependent upon moral duty to society or to oneself. Throughout the execution of this project, a voice is spoken in the back of my mind, saying that the key to establishing an ecclesial church focus to the Christian moral belief and practice lies not in programs, but in reordering the commandments, and once more establishing the first commandment as actually the first. The key to significant change relies in religion rather than morality, getting back to the love of God first over the love of neighbor. And like this project as a whole, the question of placing the commandments in the proper order goes back to an event which occurred when I was in Uganda. On the day John Kennedy was assassinated, I was in cattle camps on the banks of the Nile River. I had traveled there with the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda at the time. He was there to confirm a group of migrant herdmen who had been gathered by a young catechist. The servant was interminable, and it went on after dark. The mosquitoes were fierce, and I remember thinking, how am I going to get out of here? Just then, a very old woman got up from the edges of the circle around the fire that had been built. She walked up to the archbishop and handed him a gnarled and highly polished root, all curled up upon itself like a snake. She handed the object to the archbishop in a firm and loud voice said, Jesus lives, burn it. What she had handed the archbishop was an object in which a powerful spirit was thought to live. She had thought to have the ability to call upon the spirit to do her bidding. She paid what in local terms was a fortune to be initiated SOS to gain its power. With it, she could kill or give life. What she had done was hand over the center of her life in exchange for a new one. From that moment, I came to understand the first commandment as indeed the first. It is yet unclear to me what the, North, the churches in North America have to throw into the fire, but I'm certain that the equivalents of this gnarled root are legion. I wonder how this tossing, how this taking off and putting on, can come about. My brain, but not yet my heart, tells me only grace can accomplish such a miracle. But if not a program, then how will things change? The conclusion I have reached in the writing of this book is a change will come about men and women who are in this philosopher's term, a presence who manifests in their lives grace beyond striving. Challenge for us as defines church is to hear the words of Ephesians in a way that reclaims the order of the commandments, to bring us back into the love of God first, and then move to the love of neighbor. And not only that, that can, that can bring into our lives 
in order in which we can see the things that we have to throw into the fire ourselves. Our principalities and powers are ones we live with and make peace with, perhaps too often and too fast. So what does it mean for church to be a place? Those things are named, tossed into the fire, and we take off and put on what God has given us in new life and the armor he sends us out the world in. Let us pray. God, Ephesians has been a bold word for us. It's been a word that has called us dead, old, in darkness. But it says that through Christ we haven't been left there, but that we've been called into new life. We've been called into new clothes. We've been called out of the darkness and into the light. God, we pray to you. We spend so much time not trying to see or admit that we are in darkness. 